This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Sufi Heart Podcast with Omid Safi, featuring teachings and stories from the wisdom of the Islamic tradition. Omid invites you to a meditation on the transformative power of love and recalling the necessity of healing our own hearts through healing the world. If you'd like to support Omid's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Omid. Thank you, friends from the BU community. Thank you for this wonderful invitation. Uh, I am I'm deeply touched and honored to, to be with you, to have a chance to share some words and, and some thoughts. So in that um, proud tradition of land acknowledgement and situating myself, uh, I am an Iranian-American who um, has been born in these United States of America, currently live in the state of North Carolina, primarily in Cherokee lands. Um, I have roots in uh, different parts of the world, what um, in the southern part of the states we call roots. So my roots run deep in West Asia, what some people would call the Middle East, and in particular in Iran. At the same time, uh, I've, I've um, lived the majority of my life in the United States, and uh, my babies have all been born in this particular country. So as is the case with um, many of us, uh, the over here and the over there um, lead to one another. And, um, and uh, seeing and acknowledging and dwelling with the humanity of, of all of us from these various parts is a tremendous commitment. Um, when I was first approached to, to speak with you, um, the, the original topic that I was asked to talk about was, well, um, in uh, in Canada, certainly in the United States, in Europe, in um, Myanmar, uh, certainly in um, Kashmir, Iraq, Syria, in so many places, there is a tremendous um, plight of of uh, Muslim peoples, many of whom find themselves as as refugees, and uh, there's a great deal of what some people would call Islamophobia or anti-Muslim racism. And, and perhaps we could address that and find out how to rise above it. 
And I do hope that we will circle back around to that. But I asked, and I asked very nicely, and I smiled real big, um, and therefore I was granted that, um, how about if we begin by talking about beauty? How about if we begin by talking about love? How about if we begin by talking about poetry and the realm of spirit? Uh, one of the things that sometimes happens when people like me are blessed enough to be invited to speak is we try to impress on a larger community um, all of the things that we have had to offer. And uh, particularly for Muslim audiences, sometimes there's a tendency to run down the list of our great offerings to humanity. We used to tell people that, oh, you know, we were among the pioneers of chemistry and philosophy and mathematics until my daughter reminded me that a lot of people hate mathematics. And so that's not exactly a way of endearing us to people. Um, recently, I've gotten a little bit more clever. And so I tell people that um, if you love coffee, if you're a coffee drinker, well, um, really our tradition of a cafe of a coffee house owes its origin to uh, Middle Eastern Muslim societies. And it was only from there that it entered Europe. Um, but as the years have gone by, I've become less and less satisfied with that. Uh, that makes it seem like in order for us to be human, in order for our humanity to be acknowledged, we need to somehow have passed the litmus test of having brought spices or coffee or chemistry or reminding people that the words like algebra and algorithm have that inconvenient al in the beginning, um, a reminder of their Arabic origin. And I'm not really interested in that conversation much anymore. I think part of where I find myself at this moment of our shared human history is sitting and reckoning with the fact that whether we're dealing with African refugees, with Ukrainian refugees, Syrian refugees, Palestinian refugees, Afghan refugees, that we are valuable as human, human as human. Not because we come bearing gifts, not because we brought coffee, not because we brought spices, but because in the depth of our heart, there is that luminous presence of the divine. And so how do we as human beings see each other, engage one another, open our hearts, open our doors, open our borders to one another. Um, my wife is a gardener. She has been trying to impress upon me the importance of eating local, of eating organic, of knowing which farm the eggs that we might eat in the morning have come from eating only the fruit that is in season. But how ironic to live in a world where the shirt that you wear might have been knit in India and your pants might have been met, made in Turkey and the coffee that you're drinking must, might have come from Ethiopia and the laptop 
through which I'm speaking to you might have been manufactured in China or in Japan, but the whole of the world has come together to produce objects that cross borders with ease and grace. But when it comes to the movement of people, that we are far less generous. What does that tell us about the value that we place on things and the lack of value that we attach to people? So what I'd like to do is to focus on this beautiful tradition of the arrival of spring. And I was just speaking um, with Cheryl before we went um, live, as it were. And I'm mindful of the fact that here in my state of North Carolina, yes, the flowers are in bloom. I'm looking right outside my window and I see beautiful pink and white blossoms. Um, perhaps in your neck of the woods in, in Canada, um, there's still some of that white stuff on the ground and uh, some of it is melting. Uh, I lived for seven years in uh, upstate New York, where I think the second year that I was there, we got 192 inches of snow. Um, for those of you who are not cursed with the American system, that's about five meters of snow. Um, and uh, I thought that perhaps if the great um, and blessed prophet Muhammad had been living in upstate New York, rather than hell being described as a place of fire, uh, it would be described as a place of eternal frozenness with evermore snowfall. Um, if on the other hand, it is March 29th and you live below the equator, well, then we're not gonna be talking about the arrival of spring, but we're gonna be talking about the arrival of autumn. So, some measure and recollection that even our symbols and metaphors that we might think are quite universal do have something to say about where we are, how we experience them, and the needs to have symbols and metaphors that are fluid, that are adaptable, and that they resonate with friends where they and we call home. But in many cultures, and in particular, many Muslim cultures, the arrival of spring is celebrated. It is honored. And in many both Persian and Iranian cultures, so certainly in modern-day Iran, but also um, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, many parts of Afghanistan, some parts of Pakistan, some parts of Turkey, certain parts of Iraq. The first day of spring, which is usually March 21st, is actually celebrated and honored as the first day of the solar new year. It's a beautiful observation. It's um, the first day of the year is the first day of spring. The last day of the year is the last day of winter. There's an attunement to the seasons, an observation of the seasons. Now, 
there are certain parts of the world where the seasons may not quite be so clearly defined. I remember in upstate New York, we had the snowy season, which was about seven months of the year. And it was the non-snowy <laughs> season, which was the other five. Here in North Carolina, we've got four very distinct uh, seasons. There's a beautiful spring season that we're just embarking on. There's quite a hot and humid summertime. Uh, a gorgeous and long autumn season. And a winter season with some good snowfall. I want to ask you and us to reflect a little bit on the sanctity and spirituality of the seasons. The seasons in nature and the seasons of our own life. Some of the ways in which we live in this modern age leads us to live in a way where we try to erase and flatten the distinctions and particularity of the seasons. I'm also quite grateful that I live in a house that has central heating and central air. And when it is um, 98, 99 degrees Fahrenheit, what is that, 38, 39 degrees Celsius, and quite humid outside, yeah, I'm pretty grateful to be able to set the thermostat to a much more pleasant temperature, and it takes out some of the humidity out of the air, so that I can be indoors quite comfortable. And the same thing in the wintertime. It might be below freezing point outside, but it's that same temperature that I would have set it on. This is a really new thing for us humans. That ability to live in a constant temperature. Our ancestors didn't live like this. What was happening out there in the realm of nature very much affected them inside the home. We were always attentive to the changing of the seasons. You can also observe this a little bit in terms of the cycles of day and night. I'm right now sitting under a lamp and there's some days where uh, I might be working on preparing for a class or writing the next book, or let's be real, answering email, <laughs> which is where creativity and art go to die. Um, and it might be four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock, the sun will go down and I'll just turn the lights on. And then all of a sudden the room is just as bright as it was before. And I keep working sometimes till quite late at night, answering those emails, preparing for class, writing the next book. That's a new thing for us as humans. Until quite recently, we as humanity were attentive to the rhythm of the sun. We would wake up around the time of sunrise, 
for us as Muslims, the very first prayer of the day would be offered at or before sunrise. Our activity time coincided with daylight, which would be interrupted with some meals and some prayers. And when the sun would go down, we would retreat inward. We would retreat to family life, perhaps with a candle, perhaps with an oil lamp, a couple of more short prayers, family gathered around a fire or a hearth, stories being shared, perhaps a book being read. And in the pitch of darkness, whenever you would look up at the heavens, you would see stars. You would see a heavenly constellation of stars in their full brilliance. Nowadays, if you want to see all those stars up in the heavens, we have to get away from city life. You have to go an hour or two into nature. And then you look up, and if you're really fortunate, you might see the heavens as our ancestors saw it. Not with five or ten stars, but where you can see the Milky Way. And if you sit perfectly still and you lay down on your back, you can see after a while the apparent movement of the constellations. So we've gained a lot in terms of productivity, but we've also lost a lot in terms of the rhythm of our life, the attunement to nature and the ability to live a harmonious life. Think about this. Um, and I'm mindful of, of this fact. To have a job in this day and age is something not to be taken for granted. I am certainly immensely grateful to have a job where I get to teach, to live the life of the mind, to get to probe these ancient and eternal beauties and truths and poetry and teachings is an extraordinary privilege. And yet, and yet, when was the last time you had a weekend in which you didn't check email? When was the last time you went on a vacation in which you didn't check email or you didn't bring your laptop? The days of our life under the pressure of production, productivity, this neoliberal routine that we're all in some ways plugged into assumes a certain level of monotony. You work in the daytime, you work in the nighttime. You work on weekdays, you work on weekends. You work in the spring, you work in the summer. You work in the autumn, you work in the winter. Part of that is tied to a capitalistic worldview that says your worth is connected to what you produce. You have value to the extent that you can generate revenue for some corporation even if that corporation 
is the university. That's a different mindset than how almost all of our ancestors have lived. I think here's a place in which the Muslim tradition, and in particular, the Persian tradition, which is my home, has a lot to offer us. So our tradition talks about the need to have cycles and seasons. Nothing is ever monotonous. The sun rises, moves up to a zenith in the sky, or appears to, and then it sets. And then the moon rises, and it sets. And the moon doesn't stay constant. It starts out as a small sliver of a crescent and moves to being the full moon on the 14th night. And then it wanes until it disappears and it rises again. So cycles and seasons, and we ourselves are like this too. None of us know for sure and for certain how long we are given to live. When we hear the news of a passing away of a child, God forbid, we're overcome with a sense of extraordinary grief and tragedy. We hear of a colleague passing away in their 20s or 30s from a car accident or a drug habit. You see that as tragic if a friend or a family member passes away in their 40s or their 50s. We say, oh, this was too young. It was before their time. And as some of us, um, I myself included, might have had a grandparent pass away close to 90. People say, well, she had a good long life. It was time. The truth of the matter is none of us know. We never know. But what would it be like if we actually approached our own life as having seasons? We're not going to pretend that each of us get to have four full, long seasons. But let us say that we start out with the spring season of life. And just like in the spring season, right outside my window, the trees are in blossom. There's pink blossoms and white blossoms. In that spring season of life, there is flourishing. There is the signs of vitality and growth and youth. And by one standard, there's the peak of beauty. A few more seasons go on, and perhaps that becomes the summertime. What was once a blossom may now become a fruit. It might ripen. It might even be time for harvest. The heat of life is coming. There is a maturation of our capacities that sets in. That too has its time. I think somewhere in the Bible you've read, uh, to everything there is a season. Well, uh, I myself am now... Alhamdulillah, 52 years old. 
52 circles around the sun. Um, there's a lot more white and gray here than they're used to. You see a whole helmet of thick black hair up there. And just as the colors here have changed and are changing, when we get to the autumn season of life, the leaves start to change their color. And these leaves have changed their color. The trees begin the process of letting go, tearing down, simplifying. And there is a beauty to the autumn season. There's a radiance that sets in when the flourishing of the spring and the vibrance of the summer gives away to the changing of the colors and the starting of letting go. But that too doesn't stay constant. That leads also to the winter season. Here is where, again, our Persian friends who are in touch with the seasons know the secret that there is in winter. And I've heard the same season from my wife, who is a Swiss Muslim, a daughter of farmers. Uh, being a city boy and um, what I'd like to call a nerd, um, I had a rather intellectual relationship with winter. I thought of it in terms of temperature and snowfall and all of that. But winter, far from what we might imagine, is not just a season of death. The trees do not die in the winter. What happens is that the john, the soul, the life force of the trees, which was at one point manifest as blossoms and as fruit, returns to the roots of the tree. It goes inward, deep, grounded, rooted, and it has time to rejuvenate. Once it's been rejuvenated, then it can prepare for the next cycle and the next spring and the next flourishing. We have a hard time thinking about death. Our culture, our almost entire culture, in some capacity, is a culture designed to live in denial of death. But our Greek philosophers and the Muslim sages have both told us the whole goal of education is a meditation on death. The Prophet Muhammad, at one point, peace be upon him, has said, you have to learn to die before you die. You have to die to your egoic, selfish tendencies that want to see yourself as the center of the world. Instead, to come to see yourself as a being connected to nature, harmonious with all, and connected to God. If you have died the death of the ego, then when the physical death comes, it's a friend. 
It is nothing to fear. You are just moving from one door of the house to the garden. The great Persian poet Rumi offers this beautiful example. It's um, related to that wonderful contemporary um, saying that you might have heard. What if what we experience as the darkness of the tomb is actually just the darkness of the womb? And Rumi puts it as, imagine that you could have a pep talk with yourself when you were in your mother's womb. And you could say, oh, I know you're being well taken care of there. You're warm and you're comfortable and you're getting all of your sustenance. But I'm telling you, once you come through the birth channel, once you enter this world, there are gardens here. There are beloveds, there are flowers, there are people who love you. And that baby inside the womb, Rumi says, wouldn't know what to make of that. He says, no, this is all there is. This is all I've ever known. And there is that need to undergo some transformation and experience not a death, but a transition to a more vast world. So we go from the womb to this world that we know. And what if it doesn't stop there? What if by rising above our ego, we come to an even greater garden, to an even greater home, to an even greater place with beloveds and the ultimate beloved? Cheryl was kind enough to mention that um, I have the great blessing of taking friends on some educational uh, programs to Turkey and Morocco. And these have um, spiritual orientation. They're open to friends of all uh, faith backgrounds. And uh, some years ago, three years ago, I think now, um, we had gone on one of these trips to Turkey, and we had spent two weeks going to beautiful churches, beautiful mosques, reading mystical teachings, uh, visiting the shrines of saints, meeting living saints, listening to sacred music and dance. Uh, an extraordinary, uplifting experience that made things real. Love was real. Tenderness was real. God is real. An amazing Sufi named Jamal Noor. And my wife, who was with us on that trip, asked her a question. She said, um, teacher, we've had two weeks of this extraordinary, life-affirming, life-transformative journey. How do we hang on to this? How do we live in this state when we go back home? So that what we're experiencing here is also something that we experience when we return to our daily lives. And I've known this teacher for a while. Uh, so I was kind of expecting her to say, well, here's a zikr, a mantra that you can repeat every day 
certain number of times and you'll have the same experiences at home. But that's not what she said. Uh, she smiled and nodded along and she simply said, you can't and you won't and you shouldn't even try. And we're all a little puzzled. Why wouldn't you want to live in that high spiritual state? And she said, um, I think you're a gardener, right? And my wife said, yes. And she said, well, trees and flowers have seasons. And if they were always producing flowers, they would burn out. There's a season for giving flowers, a season for the harvest, and a season to have the life force of the tree and the plant and the flower go back down to the root and be rejuvenated. You're like this too. In our day and age, to insist on the reality that our souls and our bodies and our families and our communities are worthy of having seasons where we flourish and we produce and we harvest and to have seasons where we retreat within, where we return to our roots and we rejuvenate. is a revolutionary act of survival and resistance. In some traditions, for example, for our Jewish sisters and brothers, that was conceptualized as having a Sabbath, a Sabbath day in which one would cease from many activities. Whether or not you keep a Sabbath, the wisdom of that tradition is something urgent and urgently needed. To have a time of the day and to have a season of the year where we put down activity. You spot your John, your soul, your life force, and you allow it to become rejuvenated. One of the teachings of the Prophet, the Prophet Muhammad, is to say that we have to learn to balance activity and repose. Activity and repose. Almost imagine them as two wings that the bird of your spirit needs to have and needs to balance. If you tie one bird's wing and it just has one wing, well, it's not going to fly very far. And that's our situation, living in this modern, capitalistic, neoliberal world, which is asking you all the time, without pausing, to produce, 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 produce. I'm not telling you, I'm not telling myself to just lay down on a couch and watch Netflix. That's not the meaning of repose. What the wisdom of this tradition is asking us to do 
is to be able to trace your soul and to know what rejuvenates it. That's going to be very different for each and every single one of us. For some people, the thing that is rejuvenating might be prayer or meditation. Beautiful. For some, it might be going for a nature walk in the woods or up a mountain or to put your toes in a stream. Lovely. For some, it's solitude. Listening to a favorite piece of music or a podcast. Reading a great book. For some, it's a deep and meaningful, slow conversation with a beloved friend. One of those conversations that has lots of pregnant pauses. For some, it might be the fleshy embrace of your mama or your baba, or the touch of a lover, a hug from your child. It actually doesn't matter so much what that rejuvenating activity of repose is. But what does matter is that we trace it and we return to it again and again and again until it becomes a habit. And the returning to that repose is every bit as urgent as the need to be, quote-unquote, productive. Otherwise, it's not sustainable, and it's not good. It's not good. When you figure out what it is that offers you repose, that rejuvenates your soul, to be honest enough with yourself to know that me, at the age of 52, what rejuvenates my soul now may not be what rejuvenated my soul when I was 40. And it's certainly not what rejuvenated my soul when I was 20. What rejuvenates your soul now may not be what rejuvenated the soul of your ancestors. So we're connected to them. They are with us. We benefit from their wisdom and from their teachings. We cannot soar without their wings, but we cannot soar only on their wings. That's also a great insight and a great challenge. So that's a little bit about the sanctity and the spirituality of the seasons, of the cycles of day and night, of the spring and summer, autumn and winter, according to this tradition, our beautiful tradition, which is 
marked and observed and honored by the new year. And what I want to do is to share a few images with you that might give you a sense of some of these practices. So the new year is usually called no ruse or in some tradition, nevruz, meaning no new ruse day, the new day. The new day has come. It's the first day of spring. And there's a traditional prayer that is oftentimes said. This is one that um, the date is from a little bit ago, but we liked it enough that my wife and I printed it up. Actually, she did it. And uh, we put it on a table that I'll talk about in a second. And it's a beautiful prayer. And there's versions of this in many different Muslim cultures. Ya muqallab al-qulub wal-absar. Oh God, oh you who are the transformer of hearts and our sights. Ya mudabbir al-layl wal-nahar. You who orchestrate days and nights. Ya muhawwal al-hal wal-ahwal. You who change the year and change the states of the heart. Hawwal halina ila ahsan al-hal. So change the state of our heart to the most beautiful of states. In Arabic, the word for heart, which is the word qalb, qalb, also means change, to transform. There's a deep insight and wisdom in that teaching that the heart is not something static. Of course, what we mean by the heart is not just this fleshy lump in our chest, but the spiritual heart. That faculty, that capacity, uh, which is really the throne of God, that capacity of which God has said that the heavens and the earth cannot contain me, but the heart of my loving devotee suffices me. There's something about the human heart that can be a welcoming home for God. And this heart is always changing, always transforming, never static. Towards the end of that prayer, there's a beautiful saying, asking God, change the state of our heart to the loveliest of state. Change the state of our heart to the loveliest of state. There's a beautiful practice. A lot of us, when we are studying other cultures, other religious traditions, we're trying to also learn about them and to figure out what can this offer us. Here's one of the most beautiful parts that this tradition has to offer. Think about how often you meet somebody, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, and you ask them, how you doing? Uh, I'm not sure what the Canadian response is, but in America, at least, if you ask somebody, how are you doing? You get two responses. I'm fine. 
fine, okay, fine, fine, fine. Or in a work setting, certainly at my university, if I ever ask a coworker or student, how are you doing? What you get is a nervous head nod and people say, I'm, I'm, I'm busy, I'm so busy, I'm busy, I'm so busy, 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 busy. And then they produce to tell you their to-do list. I've got two midterms and a report, and I've got to write this thing, and I've got to write that, and I've got three things that I do this week. And they all look miserable. I have yet, in my 52 years of life, to meet a single person who says, I'm so busy, and I like it. I'm so busy, and I'm really happy about it. I'm so busy, and it rejuvenates my soul. I've never seen that. They look miserable. In Muslim cultures, this is true in Arabic, in Persian, in Turkish, in Urdu. The classical way in which you ask someone how they are, you don't ask them about their to-do list. You don't say, what's up? You say, Halishoma, Kaifa Haluka, Kaifa Haluki, Abkihal. How is the state of your heart? How is the state of your heart? So imagine a culture which is predicated on the notion that when you meet somebody, gently put your hand on their arm, you look at them in the eye. How is your heart doing right now? This is not asking about, if you would, the climate, but it's asking about the weather of the heart. In this very breath that is entering your heart, how is your heart doing? Well, that's an invitation for them to look within, to examine their own heart, and to reach you at that heart level. great gift to offer someone, to see them, to see their changing heart, and to acknowledge them. And then they reciprocate. We learn something about each other. So that's a prayer that is said with the arrival of the spring season. In many cultures, particularly Persianate cultures, and so this is beyond modern-day Iran, remember that the Persian culture previously would have gone almost everywhere from Bengal to Bosnia, uh, there is a table, a spread that is set out at the time of the new year, and the forms vary. There's a lot of creativity. But basically what is offered is there's a mirror, a copy of either the Quran or a book of poetry, and seven items that in Persian start with the letter S. S. Uh, they each have a symbolism. So the greens that you see up here would symbolize life. And apples, seed would symbolize health, and serke um, or vinegar would symbolize um, vitality and 
um, seer or garlic is you know spice and and so on. Um, and there's seven of them because the number seven is one that's so frequently shared in different cultures. Seven days of the week, seven layers of heaven, and and so on. So here's a picture of my baba, my daddy, uh, sitting in front of ours, half seen the seven S table. One of the items that is always put on there is a mirror. Is a mirror. And this is one of the most powerful symbolic offerings that this tradition has to offer. We are mirrors to each other. The prophet says at one point, every faithful soul is a mirror to the other faithful soul. And Rumi, that incomparably great Sufi mystic and poet, says that this tradition of the Prophet Muhammad has at least three meanings. It's worth for us to see what we can learn from them. One, sometimes we might meet somebody and they have a particular quality that really annoys us. Before responding and reacting in a negative way, it's worth pausing long enough to ask, is it possible, is it conceivable that the quality that I find so annoying about them is actually something that mirrors a tendency in myself? Is that possible? Oftentimes, we find the answer is yes. Um, I have a beautiful daughter who is now 21. When she was a teenager, we used to fight all the time about how messy she kept her room. Clothes everywhere. You couldn't see the color of the carpet in the room. And then one day as I'm reading this story for the 200th time, it occurred to me. Is it possible that her being so messy annoys me because I myself struggle with being messy? And I looked into my own bedroom and lo and behold, much to my surprise, I was also a messy person at that time. So I had to change my own habits before I could really have an expectation of her changing hers. That's the first one. The second level of the story is not about negative qualities, but beautiful qualities. How often it is that when you have a partner, a lover, a friend, or a teacher, they get to be a mirror to you. They get to hold up a reflective heart in front of you so that you can see in yourself qualities that you might not have known. Rumi again tells a story that there was someone who was coming to see a beautiful friend. And this friend searched far and wide for a worthy gift. 
couldn't find anything that was worthy. Whatever they thought of, the friend already had it and they had something even better. And so at long last, they think of the right present and they acquire one and they wrap it up nicely and they offer it to the friend and the friend opens it up. And what is it? Of course, it's a mirror. It says, I brought you this so that every time you look at it, you can see the loveliest person in the world. That's a great gift to offer a friend or a lover or a partner. Remind them of the beauty that they might have temporarily forgotten about. But in order for the mirror of your heart to actually reflect, to actually work, well, it has to be polished, it has to be pure, it has to be cleansed. The mirror of our heart is in need of constant polishing. If it's too smudged, if it's dirty, well, then the surface becomes dull and you don't get to see a reflection. So to purify the heart, to illuminate the heart, to have a reflecting heart, these are among the qualities. And then Rumi also reminds us that that word faithful, the faithful is a mirror of the faithful, is also one of the names of God. That ultimately, the goal for us is to serve as a mirror of divine qualities on this earth. As God is loving, we should strive to be loving. As God is tender, we should strive to be tender. As God is just, we should strive to be just. So three different meanings of the very same saying. And then there's also a copy of the Quran, or in some households, a copy of poetry that is held there. Uh, this is a particularly beautiful, illuminated copy of the Quran. And I want to share one little insight that I think, again, is applicable to people of all faith backgrounds and all faith traditions. So if you look at the very center of the page, you have um, the verses of the Quran written. Around it, you've got an illumination, very similar to the way that the Bible would have been illuminated in the medieval times. Um, gold leaves that have been pounded down and beautiful, rich blue colors. It's meant to remind you of the daytime sky with the rich blue firmament of the heavens and the illuminated gold of the sun. That the scripture is something heavenly, celestial. And there's a powerful verse in the Quran um, that 
we, meaning God, we will show you our signs in three places. First, the verses of scripture. Fill off up on the furthest horizons in nature. And inside your own soul. Until it becomes clear to you that God is real. So this is the answer to that perennial question. Where do I find God? According to the wisdom of this tradition, we look for God in three places. Yes, we should read scripture, by extension, poetry, literature, music. And then, and then, if you pay attention to this page, you see that there are arrows to the left of the page, arrows to the bottom of the page, arrows to the right of the page, arrows to the top of the page. Any direction that you take one of the arrows, it leads your eyes off the page. And what is off the page? What is off your computer screen? Outside of the walls and the windows, nature. Nature, too, is a place to see and experience God. So there are some copies of the Quran, like this one here, which actually make the pages of the Quran look like the night sky, filled with stars. The line between scripture and nature becomes quite blurry. And other examples, like this one, actually draw in gold color hills and trees and bushes and streams. What would it be like if we learned to read the scripture of nature leaf by leaf, stream by stream, tree by tree, hill by hill, butterfly by butterfly, with the same tenderness and attention that we read pages of scripture. In fact, some of these Muslim sages talk about the need to learn to read the written down Quran and the cosmic Quran the Quran of nature. So what is that third place that we are meant to look for God inside your own soul? We look for God in scripture, in nature, and in our own souls. And as I move towards wrapping up and opening up for questions, this is the place that we want to come back to. What is it like for us to look for God in humanity. Look for God in humanity. So, there's an amazing saying of the Prophet Muhammad, 
Um, this echoes, of course, a biblical passage, but it becomes a favorite of later Muslim mystics, in which on the day of judgment, God gathers up all of the faithful and the divine asks us, um, I was hungry. Why didn't you feed me? And people are very puzzled. They say, you are God of the whole world. How could we ever feed you? And God's response is, if you had come to the hungry, you would have found me with them. I was thirsty. Why didn't you give me something to drink? People say, God, you created the cloud and the rivers and the streams. How could you ever be thirsty? Well, if you had gone to the thirsty, you would have found me with them. I was sick. Why didn't you come to visit me? Well, if you had gone to the sick, you would have found me with them. And some of the Muslim sages call this the divine withness, that God is with the brokenhearted. God is with those who are hurting and vulnerable. I am with those whose hearts are broken. You read the Bible and you read the Quran, there's a remarkable consistency that the ethical measure of a society is never based on the wealth that we generate. If you want to see how righteous and godly a society is, look at the ways in which those out on the margins of society are faring. So in biblical times and Quranic times, that's always defined as the poor, the orphan, the needy, the widow. The poor, the orphan, the needy, the widow. Today, we might add First Nation people, trans kids, queer kids, undocumented people, black folk suffering at the hands of the police, Refugees washing up on the shore. The long list. The wisdom of this tradition is that it insists unapologetically that we're wrapped up in this together. So there's a wonderful saying of the Prophet Muhammad, um, which the great Persian poet Sadi paraphrases. And I'll read this for you. Humanity are members of one body, created out of the same essence. When one member of the body feels pain, Others remain distraught. You unfeeling to the suffering of others are unworthy of the name human. In other words, what Saadi is saying is that humanity is not just something that we possess on the inside. Humanity is measured through the response that we have to all who are hurting and suffering. 
Humanity is relational. Humanity is through compassion and empathy towards those who are vulnerable. Not just those who look like us, not just those who carry our nationality or religious tradition or our sexual orientation, anybody who's hurting anywhere on this planet. That great Rumi offers an insight. This could be the best marriage advice you ever get. It could be the best friendship advice that you get. It's also the best advice that we get when we think about the world in which there's so much hurt and so much pain and so much suffering. But we know that we're not doomed to live like this. Rumi simply says, you and I should live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I. You and I should live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I. I know I've gone a little bit more than the hour, but if you allow me, I'll end with one last story. And this is also in the same book that I've been reading from, Radical Love. Um, the story is from a thousand years ago. And it's uh, from an extraordinary Persian sage, Haraqani. Uh, my father introduced me to him when I was about 14 years old. And uh, Haraqani tells the story, and this really is where I'm going to stop and we'll open it up to your questions. Um, Haraqani tells the story of two brothers. And they live with their elderly mother. Haraqani says that the two brothers, though raised in the same household, have a very different personality, very different temperament. One of them, whom we're going to call the praying brother, spends morning, noon, and night devoted to prayer. Not only does he do the five times a day required Muslim prayers, he does all the extra prayers. The brother, the other brother, on the other hand, does the required prayers, but the minimum. And instead, he devotes himself morning, noon, and night to taking care of their elderly and sick mother. Mama, can I get you some water? Mama, would you like some food? Um, Mama, can I help you get to the bathroom? One night... The praying brother finally has a dream in which he hears the voice of God. Right? This is one of those great gifts that all spiritual seekers pray for. And in that dream, he hears the voice of God say to him, Congratulations. For the sake of your brother, I've decided to forgive both of your sins and admit you both into my luminous presence. And the praying brother says, oh my God, you, you can't imagine how long I've been waiting for this. Um, this is wonderful news. But you see, oh God, um, I think you're mistaken because you see, I'm the praying brother. I'm the one who's never missed a prayer. I think what you mean to say, oh God, is that for the sake of my prayers, you are forgiving my brother. 
And the mic drop moment comes uh, from Haragani at the end of the story by God responding with this line. I'm pretty clear whom I'm speaking with because you see all of those prayers that you did to me, I have no need of, but your mama needs you. And that's the end of the story. But your mama needs you. So if we take seriously this notion that we as members of one humanity, one God, are wrapped up together, that what happens to one directly affects all indirectly, part of the question and the challenge for us is who needs us? Who's vulnerable? Who's thirsty? Who's hungry? Whose dignity is being assaulted? And what is it that we can bring to the table? Not only alleviating their suffering, but also affirming our own humanity in the process. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.